I have in my hands this morning a box, and it is a box full of puzzle pieces, and some of them are on the floor now. But I'd like to know if you could uh, tell me by looking at one of these pieces what we're, what we're maybe looking at in the puzzle. See if you can tell me. What, what is this a puzzle of? Here, let me hand you a really helpful one. Here's, here's one. What would that be? Could be sky. Great. It, it's a blue piece. It's almost exclusively blue, right? So here we've got a piece that's almost exclusively blue with a tint of some other color, sort of orangish, it looks like. Yeah, I put, the, I put one of these pictures up on the screen so you could actually look at what one of these pieces is. Maybe one of you can tell us. What is this, what is this puzzle actually about? You, that, well, now there you, you got a point. I happen to have it up here. But our lives are a lot like this many times. When we have kind of a piece of the puzzle and we don't really know the answers. What is this, what is this puzzle of my life really all about? But it's because we don't have the box, right? We don't have the full picture. God has the picture. And so this morning, as we come to the 44th and part of the 45th chapter of the book of Genesis, we find out that this baseline understanding in the life of Joseph, that God is the one who is in charge and that his capacity to plan perfectly and to plan what is good and right for Joseph and for you and me, as we heard in Romans chapter 8, God is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We can know in one sense what Joseph knew that held him through impossible situations that maintained his faith in difficulty that's beyond imagination. We can be those who can have answers to some of our personally most challenging questions. This morning, if it were possible, I would like to take all of us outside to the bonfire I have back behind my barn. It's a little cold this morning, but I'd like to light that bonfire off. I'd like to have all the sunlight gone, only the stars overhead, and there as we warm ourselves in front of the fire, I'd like to tell you a story. And so we can't have the bonfire, but I can tell you the story. It's a story so riveting and so passionate and so exhilarating that I want you to actually experience it this morning. Long ago, eons before time itself was born, there was a great God. Somewhere in that time before time began, he held counsel among the triunity of the three members of the Godhead. What proceeded from that counsel was a plan at once so beautiful and simultaneously so unthinkably costly that all the most intelligent beings who were ever brought into that plan could only wonder at it. And then at the perfect moment, if there are moments when there is no time, God put his plan into motion and he made the first man. But what we must understand is that when he formed Adam from the dust of the ground, he had, get this, when he formed Adam from the dust of the ground, he had already planned for Adam's redemption. There was never a time, there was never a time when the cross was not on the mind of God. And if the cross was always on God's mind, then I want to tell you that so were you. That's really what we're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. God, it says, chose us he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, when there was yet no time, before the world was even made. Get that? Before the world was even made, God chose you that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God's plan includes you. He planned for your redemption 
for your redemption before the foundation of the world. Redemption and your part in the redemptive story were not God's fallback alternative when the fall occurred. They weren't the second best option that God could come up with. They weren't the result of God scrambling around for an alternative when Adam and Eve sinned and wrecked everything that innocence and a beautiful garden could produce. That's what Paul tells us later in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 2, and verse 10, he announces, We are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's plan has always been redemption. And it's always been not only your redemption, but that you would join him in fulfilling a special part as you work with him for the redemption of others. It's always been his purpose that you fulfill a special part in his plan. There has never been a time when you were not a part of the plan of God. And there has never been a time when the good works that he has ordained for you were not already prescribed for you to fulfill in joining him in his redemptive work. This truth does a couple of things for us. It teaches us that the great goal of every believer is not to be somehow the savior of the world, to save the world on their own, but to work together with God who is in the business of doing that very thing, saving the world. We get to cooperate with him. We get to do the good works that God has planned out for us from forever as a part of his flawless, perfect, redemptive plan. But it does something else for us. It brings us back to our story in the book of Genesis. You see, in the great eternal counsel of God, he not only planned redemption through Jesus' blood and the agony of the cross, he planned the entire process by which that redemption would occur in time and space. Okay, think about that for just a moment. God not only planned the cross from forever, he not only planned your part in the redemptive story, but he planned the entire process by which that redemption would one day occur. The whole thing. So, guess what? That means the hard things, the things that we didn't want. That means for Joseph, things like prison, being rejected and hated by his brothers. This was all a part of the plan of God. And as we come to chapter 45 here in a few minutes, you will hear that. And you will hear that Joseph knew it. And because he knew it, his entire life was changed from what it would have been. It really all started this plan with that first man and woman and a, and a talking snake in a perfect paradise. It was to the snake in that cursed aftermath of the first sin that the first gospel was delivered. This is where that's found, Genesis chapter 3.15, and this is what God said, speaking to Satan in the form of a snake. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her Offspring, I've capitalized it because it really is referring to one offspring. He, this offspring, this one to come, this deliverer who would yet be revealed, shall bruise your head. He will crush you, and you shall bruise his heel. And we've seen how that happened at the cross. In this very beginning gospel, this proto-evangelium, this first gospel, we hear the cross, the resonance of the redemptive plan of God ringing all the way to the very moments immediately following the fall of man when everything appeared to be lost. Because, because redemption's always been the plan of God. Because it's never not been on his mind. Because he made man knowing what would take place and having a purpose for you. From this point forward, God began weaving the gospel into the very fabric of human history. He called people to be his representatives, announcing that there would one day be a redeemer, a redeemer that he had planned from forever who would deliver people from their sin. So Adam and Eve had children, and the firstborn was named Cain, and the second was named Abel, and Cain killed Abel, but he killed him because of his jealousy over the offering that he made, because he made an offering that accurately represented the redeemer who would one day come this Redeemer, the price of redemption would be blood. Seth was born taking the place of Abel whom Cain killed. This Seth 
fathered Enosh. And at that time, Genesis tells us, people began calling upon the name of the Lord. You can hear the trickle effect of redemption and God's redemptive plan beginning to take place. Enoch, he was seven from Adam. He was the seventh down. You can count it and find that he was. He walked with God and he was not because God took him. It was a pretty special time. He didn't die. He went straight to heaven. But did you know that he was also a prophet? He was a prophet. The, but the interesting thing is the Old Testament doesn't tell us anything about his prophecies. But the New Testament does. In the end of the book of Jude, it says this about what he prophesied. It says that he told the people of his time, of his day, the people that needed redemption in his era, seven generations from Adam. Behold, he says, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Part of Enoch's mission as he walked with God was to bring people face to face with the reality of their sin and prepare them for the coming redemption of the Savior. Noah, when the corruption of mankind grew so great as to cause God to say, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them, he raised up Noah, who pictured what it is to come into a refuge that's absolutely secure in a firestorm, a waterstorm of God's wrath. It was water then, but it'll be fire to come. And there's a refuge because we have a redeemer, because it's always been the plan of God to redeem. And because your part in that redemptive plan has always been on his mind. It was from Noah's son Shem that Abraham was descended. God chose Abraham as his particular representative of redemption in the world and promised that through him would come an entire people who would live out the story of redemption. To Abraham was born the child of promise Isaac. To Isaac, Jacob. To Jacob, there were ten sons born. And, oh, and Joseph and Benjamin each one with a special role to play in a story that began before time and has played out to our time and will play when time has ended. And really, that brings us to Genesis chapter 44. But first, let's pray. When we stop to think about your plan, Father, We're completely overwhelmed. Why would you redeem? Why would you care? Why would you create what you knew would have to be redeemed? We don't know all the answers, but we do know this. You are the redeemer, and you redeem for a purpose. And so you've redeemed us with the purpose that we should join you in your redemptive purposes, your redemptive plan in our generation. That we should announce the Redeemer as we cooperate together with you. There are a lot of whys in our lives, a lot of questions we have about how our piece of the puzzle fits with the redemptive plan. It doesn't seem right. Why should I experience this sickness, or why should I know this trial? We can't see how our little piece fits. But today, as we study the life of Joseph, we're looking forward to finding out that we can know, and we can move forward with you in confidence. By your Holy Spirit, open your word to us this morning, we ask for Jesus' sake. Genesis chapter 44, you'll find as you turn there, if you would like to join me, that here we have really in one sense, as I said, the watershed of the entire story of the life of Joseph. Joseph at this point in time has been in Egypt for 22 years, longer than he lived with his family in Canaan by five years. 
he spent most of his time, that 22 years, either in slavery or in prison. He's now 39 years old. The last nine years of Joseph's life, he's been the ruler in Egypt. He's been in charge, you could say, of the famine preparedness program. In the past two years, it's been time of famine. And he's spent those two years distributing food to the Egyptians and to the neighboring peoples who are just running out of food. I want you to remember that Joseph was 30 years old when he came before Pharaoh. And when he came before Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, I hear that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph quickly came back with a very important answer that plays into what we'll study today. He said, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You'll remember that before this in the life of Joseph, when he was tempted by his master's adulterous wife. And she tempted him day after day. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Because just the other side of the adulteress was the God whom he loved, who blessed him and favored him with every good thing. Joseph kept seeing God. He saw God when he appeared before Pharaoh. He saw God when he appeared in the house of his master where perhaps no one would have needed to know what took place between him and that woman. But I want you to understand that God is at work on multiple levels. He, he's using this famine that he's brought not as an accidental disaster that just fell upon the world and somehow rain didn't fall. No, he is bringing the disaster upon the world for a purpose. Psalm 105, we've looked at, says that God summoned the famine. Come, famine. And the famine came. And the famine did its work. It pressed, squeezed Joseph's family closer to Egypt, closer to food, closer to the gospel, to reconciliation, and yes, to redemption. God summoned the famine, but God also sent a man ahead. But boy, what a way to go. It would have been much better to go UPS than to go as a slave to a foreign land that nobody wanted to have nearby. He was hated. He was despised. He was run out of his own family and his own home. But everything was really perfectly under control in the great redemptive plan. We don't know what Joseph thought when he woke up for perhaps the thousandth day in prison, but we do know that he never lost sight of God's purpose for him or his promise. Somehow, somehow, God would work everything out. Somehow, he would make the wrongs right. Somehow, he would fulfill the promise. And it's at that point that point for Joseph, and really that point in our own lives, that redemption and our part in redemptive history becomes very, very personal. Because really we often can't see beyond our own experience. But that doesn't mean that God is not at work. That he actually holds the answer key to the little tiny piece of the puzzle that you hold in your hand. You have a few moments, a few days. James talks about it like a, a breath upon a cold morning, and it lasts for how long? Not long. You can try it out there this morning. Your breath will hang in the air for a moment and be gone. That's our life. We hold that much of the puzzle, and frankly, we don't actually hold that much even. You know what? Your whole, if your whole life is a vapor, how much is the part you're living today? It's pretty small, and we don't know what will happen this afternoon. But God does. He's never losing control. He's, your part in redemptive history is perfectly under control in the plan of God. We have the privilege, though, of getting to work together with him through the process, even though that might mean, as it did for Joseph, prison or sickness or estrangement or death. By the time we reach Genesis chapter 42, the famine is so severe that Joseph's family in the land of Canaan is going to go hungry if they can't find some source for food. They heard about the fact that there was food in Egypt, and they traveled to that far country and showed up on Joseph's doorstep. Joseph then gave his brothers the gospel. But he gave the, his brothers the gospel through a whole lot of patient waiting in a very different way than we think of giving the gospel. He gave them every opportunity to recognize that they had a problem, that they were sinners in need 
of a savior, that they had irreconcilable differences with their God, their redeemer. Through coming face to face with their own guilt and sin, they found perhaps a glimmer of their need for redemption. So he put them three days in prison. And they said at that time, when they came back out of prison, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben adds to that idea, that argument. He says, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now, now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Joseph offers mercy. You remember that the brothers he had told initially, I will put you all in prison, and one of you can go back and get that brother to prove that you are not spies as you've said you are. Not. And when they came out of prison, he said, okay, one will stay here, and the rest can go back. So even in the midst of bringing them to recognize their guilt, their shame, their need for redemption. He shows mercy. But he sends them back in a difficult way. Well, I mean, it was kind of a cool way. They had lots of money at the end of the trip. Only the money wasn't the money that they wanted to have. It's like, now we've got a real problem. We've got all the money that we were supposed to leave with Joseph. It's in the top of our sacks. And every man opened his sack and found that it was true for each of them. Everybody's money is back in the top of his sack. Whatever are we going to do now? I guess we just leave Simeon in prison which is what they did. Following true to their character and, and um, based on Jacob's particular fears, they just left him there until their stomachs made a more persuasive argument and they ran out of food again. And it was at that point in time that Reuben begged Jacob, his father, and said, kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back safely to you. We've got to go. And Jacob still said, no. It's in the next chapter, the chapter that we looked at last week, chapter 43, that Judah comes with a more persuasive argument, and he entreats his father. Remember, they're also hungrier at this point in time. In verse 4 of chapter 43, if you will send our brother down with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, verse 5, chapter 43, if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Jo Judah, remarkably, goes on at this point in time to make a very persuasive argument and to say, couldn't we have gone twice already and been back again if you had not delayed? Jacob finally says, okay. And he makes this interesting statement trusting the boys, the men, his children to God. He says, God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. He doesn't name Simeon, he just calls him the other brother. Your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. In chapter 43, Joseph meets them, and as in his first meeting with the brothers, he weeps. He says to Benjamin, God be gracious to you, my son, and then he has to rush out of the room because of the emotion that has overwhelmed him. And he comes back after regaining his composure and wiping his face, and he seats them by age order. He feeds them, but he heaps Benjamin's plate with five times the food that the others received, and then he sent them on their way. Chapter 44 opens with what happens next. Joseph says in verse 1, commanded the steward of the house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry. This is a heaping amount, as much as they can carry. Put each man's money, uh-oh, same money going back in the mouth of his sack, and put, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he, the steward, did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had only gone a short distance from the city. Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? The Septuagint adds this to it. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And they add, Why have you stolen my cup? Why have you returned evil for good? Why have you stolen my silver cup? 
Is it not, says Joseph in verse 5 of chapter 44, from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Now the brothers come back in verse 9 with an astonishing determination to demonstrate that they really are on the right track. Listen to what it says in verse 9. The brothers say, Whichever of your servants is found with it, with this cup, shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. Okay, so now you've promised everyone's going into slavery, and the one that has the cup will die. They didn't wait for Joseph to pass sentence. They said, we'll go ahead and pass sentence on ourselves, hang the axe over our own heads. Whoever has it dies, and the rest of us will be servants for life. Simeon already knew something about what that was going to look like. It wasn't pretty. They'd already spent three days in prison. Not too cool. And this was the promise of a life sentence, and the one who had the cup would be executed. But of course, they were certain that nobody did, right? And so they made this promise confident that they could be exonerated, that nobody could lay a finger against them, that no one could say, you're wrong this time. They probably should have been thinking about what had happened last time, but somehow that didn't enter their heads. And they just made an outrageous promise of certainty that they were innocent. In verse 16... Actually, before verse 16 and verse 14, Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house because they, sure enough, the steward found that the money was in their sacks. He found that the cup was in Benjamin's sack. They tore their clothes. They loaded their donkeys and returned, and Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. Verse 14, he was still there. Funny thing, he was still there. He was waiting for them. They fell before him to the ground And Joseph simply said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Judah steps to the plate again. Interesting. And he says this, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? Listen to what he says. God, God has found out the guilt of your servants. God has found out our guilt. Can I encourage you to think that that's where we've all got to get? To the place where we recognize that God himself knows our guilt. And until then, we really aren't ready for redemption. God has found out our guilt. He goes on to say in verse 17, far be it from me, Joseph says that I should do so. In other words, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to make you all servants. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. As for you, go ahead and go back home. Now, God's poetic in the parody that he's drawing here. I want you to remember that it was Judah who in chapter 37 concocted the plan for Joseph to be sold. And it is, in chapter 44, Judah, who must stand up and say, I will take the place of the one my father loves. Now, think of the place that this puts Judah in. Benjamin is the son of the favorite wife. He's the one that dad really likes. He's the favorite since Joseph is gone. And you're going to stand up for the favorite? You're going to say, I'll take his place. I'll substitute my life for his. But something's been taking place in the life of Judah. And he's ready to do that. So he actually steps up and says, verse 18, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. They still think or somehow assume that in the process of selling Joseph and what he would have experienced afterwards, that he was not just in slavery anymore, but that he was dead. They've held to this line pretty consistently through our story. Joseph is dead, in their opinion. And he, Benjamin, alone is left of his mother's children. His father loves him. Put yourself in Judah's place. This is going to be a difficult thing to argue because Joseph just said to you, go ahead and head back home. 
And after all, dad doesn't love you that much anyway. Think about it. But Judah says, verse 30, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Verse 33. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. Let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back? How can I go back to my father if the boy isn't with me? Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out for me. The loneliness, the hatred of his brothers, the longings for home, the love of his brothers, and the culmination of all the years of waiting for this hour towered and crested like a giant wave crashing on the shore of Joseph's soul, and he utterly broke beneath its power. All the pain of 22 years of separation from his family, all the injustices heaped upon him, all the hatred directed at him, and all the waiting all the anticipation, all the hope for what was promised, and all the love that he'd so yearned to experience and all the love he'd so yearned to bestow, all this rushed out of him in a single moment and he cried out, make everyone go out for me. It was too personal, too holy a moment to share with anyone but those to whom he longed to say, I love you. No one was there. But look at verse 2. As he wept aloud, the Egyptians heard of it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. We're not talking about some quiet weeping. We're talking about wailing. As Joseph encounters his brothers and says, I am Joseph. It's so loud that they hear it outside, all the way to the household of Pharaoh. Joseph said to his brothers, verse 3, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But I think he didn't just say it. I think he cried it out. I am Joseph! Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him. They were horrified. Joseph suddenly switched languages. He was speaking in the Egyptian tongue, and now suddenly he's speaking their language. You remember that they had a translator between them up until this moment when he sends everybody out, all of a sudden he starts speaking their language. It's a pretty good testament to the fact that he knows something about them. Why else would a man speak our language who's just as Pharaoh himself, except in the throne? It was like seeing a ghost, only it was worse, because this was Joseph alive. This was Joseph in power. This was Joseph as they had never known him. This was Joseph of the dreams that they had mocked. This was Joseph the prophet. This was Joseph the representative of the God that they had offended. This was Joseph once despised and hated and sold. This was Joseph now ruling in power and the brothers could not answer him. So Joseph says, and I think in a much different tone, Come near to me, please. Was it a trick? Was it just a way to get close enough to kill them with a sudden flash of a shining blade? But no. Joseph says to them, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
God sent me here. He says it again in verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. He says it again in verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Do you think there's a point to what Joseph is telling his brothers? God has a plan. God sent Joseph. Because he was so certain, so confident in the God who had sent him, in the fact that it was God that had sent him. He could go through the difficulties, he could go through the impossibilities, he could go through not knowing what the whole puzzle looked like, holding only his small piece of blue sky, which, by the way, is actually water in this picture. Because we don't know from one piece, right? We don't understand. We don't have the whole picture. And neither did Joseph. But he did know something. He knew God. And he knew that God had a plan. And he knew that God's plan was to redeem. God has a plan. We want to say when we encounter a reality like that, that's very good. That's nice to hear, and I'm glad. But Joseph really knew, and I don't. Pushing the wrong button, sorry. Joseph knew, and I don't know. But what did Joseph know? Joseph knew God. He knew that God had a plan, and he knew that God had a plan for him. Like we said at the very beginning, God from before time began had a plan. The cross has always been on his mind. Redemption has always been his purpose and your part in that plan. Your part to fulfill the purpose that he has for you has always been on his mind. So what your experience presently is, is in fact a part of the plan of God. It's a part of the plan of God to redeem. Joseph knew that God's character was faithfulness and truth. He knew that he always delivered on his promises, that he always loves his people. He knew that God had a plan, that God's in the business of redemption, that his plan is for his people, for their good. He knew that God had a plan for him, that God was personally, get this, that God was personally, ultimately responsible for sending him to Egypt. That's what he said. God sent me here. for sending him to the fire of trial, for sending him to every difficulty he'd experienced in the last 22 years. It was God, not his brothers. So 10 brothers stood before him, 11 when Benjamin appeared at this point, but he didn't look at his brothers. He looked beyond his brothers. He looked beyond his brothers to the God who had sent him. Verse eight. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Think of saying that to those men. Your brothers, who have hated you, despised you, and condemned you to a life of utter misery. Who've wrenched you from all the family fabric. Who have left you to foreign gods. He says it with such emphasis, it's hard to get too much of it. Listen again in verse 8. It was not you who sent me here. Wait a minute, Joseph. That's, we know, no, he says, that was not you who sent me here. It was God. Now, they were a part of the process. But this, too, was a part of the redemptive plan, a plan for Joseph for good. Job faces the question of why question that we ask next. If it's true that my life is a part of the redemptive plan of God, if he's always been considering redemption, it's always been his plan, then why do I have to experience the things that I face, just as Joseph had to experience? And Job says this in Job chapter 23, 3 through 5. He says, oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him. I would fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. But God let Joseph know that not understanding 
Job know that not understanding does not mean that God isn't at work, but he is in fact working in secret. You'll remember in the story of Job that we aren't told that Job ever knew what was taking place in the heavenlies. We know because we can read the story because we know the end of the chapter. We know the end of the book. But Job, as far as we know, never knew. But not understanding, not knowing that part is not essential to growing in grace. It's not essential to our part in the redemptive plan. It is good to understand, but it's better to trust. About 10 years ago, my son Andrew was five years old, and he went on a tractor ride with one of his uncles. And this tractor has a big roll bar on it. And somehow, bumping around the field, or perhaps Andrew fell asleep, I don't really know what, uh, he managed to hit his head on the roll bar. And it split his head. I had dealt with splits in my family before, and um, I found that super glue was a pretty effective way to deal with it. And so when Andrew came home, we looked at it. We thought it would probably heal. It wasn't a bad gash, but it'll probably heal. And we'll just, um, but you know, let's try and limit the scarring. So we'll go ahead and glue it together. I'd had enough practice to know that when it says bonds skin instantly on the back of the tube, it actually does mean it. And um, so I, we had him lay down on the couch, and I practiced pushing the two sides of the split together so that I'd get it just right when it bonded skin instantly. And then I, I got it all lined up, and I pushed the two sides of Andrew's forehead together and I asked Melissa to drip just a fine line of superglue down the center of the wound, which she did. And then because I, even though I know it says bond skin instantly, I want to be really sure. And it's kind of wet and all that, right? Because there's a little bit of blood. It wasn't much, but a little bit of blood and whatever else comes out of cuts. Anyway, so it was there. We pushed it together and I counted to 30. I gave it 30 seconds. 30 seconds later, I let go and everything held perfectly, including my left thumb, which was now glued to my son's forehead in a very awkward position. This was not the way I wanted to see things go, and I asked Melissa to go get acetone somewhere from the recesses of my mind. I remembered that this was supposed to be a solvent for uh, super glue, and so she ran out to my shop. I happily had acetone because I'm a glass artisan, and anyway, we sometimes use acetone all kinds of reasons, but I had it. And um, so she went and got it. It's a fast evaporating solvent. But what I didn't know is that when you put it in cuts, it really, really hurts. And um, so now we're torturing my son, who's screaming as we're applying acetone to try and get me free from his forehead. But what are we going to do? I mean, go to the hospital? How are we going to go to the hospital like this? I can't move. He's stuck. I'm stuck. We're stuck. I can't wrench it because I'm going to rip the wound open again. We're applying acetone. And, but he's screaming. We've got to give up. So we gave up. I said, well, you know, the wall of white desperation rises above us. What are we going to do now? Can't, I mean, 911 is probably not going to be able to do much to help. So, and I kind of got myself in this pickle. And what are they going to want to do? Ask me. I'm probably going to go to jail. So, so I said, there's, there's new razors in my shop because I use those in my work too. Go get razors. Only, so she ran, Melissa ran and got the razors. I can't move. I'm stuck. So she ran and got the razors from my shop. Brand new, sharp, fresh razors. And, um, and I started cutting at the glue bond. Only I found something else out about super glue. It's tougher than skin. And I couldn't cut it with a brand new sharp razor. Could not cut the super glue bond. Now we're in trouble. So I'm desperate. I say, bring the acetone. We're going at it again. This time we've got to get free. Because this has probably gone on for at least 20 minutes to half an hour by this point in time. Ella's nodding her head. She remembers this. It's a family memory we bring out once in a while, occasionally. Andrew and I felt very close after this. <laughs> so we got the acetone out, but now I've cut myself enough that I'm actually able to experience a little bit of what he was experiencing, and I realized this is not a good solution. We're not able to go through with it. Acetone does, in fact, hurt when you pour it into cuts. And so I finally gave up and said, bring the razors. I know there's only one answer, and I'm going to have to cut just the thumb side of the wound. And eventually, I was free. You come away from a situation like that and you say, I don't understand why. And we could come up with all kinds of fabrications. Uh, you know, we could say, conquer the fear of losing skin in the scrapes of life. Or 
we could say develop close and lasting relationships, or we could say God was trying to teach us the importance of letting go. But it's all just a fabrication. We're making it up. We don't know. I don't know to this day. Why did I go through this ridiculous situation? Why did I have to do this crazy thing with my son Andrew? What was God saying? Hard to say. I don't hold enough of the puzzle. I only hold one small piece. You know, at the end of Job's entire history of difficult, in, impossible, really, trials, he couldn't say, I've got five nifty lessons I've learned from my trials. Let me tell you about them. But he did understand better who God was and who he was in God's sight. Sometimes, sometimes God cloaks his reasons in darkness in order to draw us closer to him. We like reasons. We like answers. But the answer is what he's looking to give to us because he's working out his great plan of redemption to reveal himself to us. That's what redemption is really all about. God revealing himself to us. God showing himself to us. It's what sustained Joseph. So it was not you who sent me here. It was God. I don't hold enough of the puzzle to know the whole story. But I know enough to say that my God is the true God. And my God is the faithful God. And my God has a reason, though I don't fully understand. We can say, what happens to me is not an accident. It is by design. The design is good for me, and it's good for the people of God. Nothing and no one can trump that plan because God is God and because God loves me. I don't know all the reasons. You don't know all the reasons, but we can affirm this. And we can say, too, that this is the very best plan that an eternity of purposeful divinity could ever make. Let me say that in different words. If God were to spend all of eternity figuring out the best possible plan for you, this would be it. And by the way, he has. He has spent all of eternity coming up with the very best plan. So now it's our joy to work together with God to fulfill his perfect plan for us and for his world. From our single piece of the puzzle, it's almost impossible to tell what's going on in the great ultimate counsel of God. But this we know. He is the redeemer. He is working in my life for the purpose of his redemption. And he's working through my life for the purpose of the redemption of others. God has a plan for good. And when you can see the plan, one day we will. We'll understand. Your purpose in redemptive history is bigger than you'll understand the side of heaven, but you can look for God. The goal of considering all this redemptive history is not so that we can figure everything out, but so that we can believe God when we can't figure everything out, so that we'll see him when nothing makes sense, when the world is against us, when nobody understands, when our health is failing, when our part that we play in the kingdom looks like a waste, when it seems like there has to be a better way to accomplish the, the plan than the way that God has gone about it. God will, in his time, reveal his purpose for you in his redemptive plan. After all, it is his plan, and he cares about it more than you do. His plan is to personally involve you in his work of the ages because we are his ambassadors. He is making his appeal through us on the basis of redemption, be reconciled to God. So we get that chance to work together with him, appealing to men and women, not that they not reject the grace of God, but they receive it, that they receive the word of his forgiveness. There might be some here, though, this morning who actually haven't yet joined God's redemptive plan in time and space. And to those who do not yet know the astounding reality that God forgives the worst of sinners, 
who confesses his sin and believes Jesus, the Savior, the Redeemer. To those in this condition, I would speak words from that same chapter we just quoted, Paul's chapter of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I would say this to you. Be reconciled to God. And Paul says it in a very interesting way. He says, as ambassadors for Christ, we stand in a sense in Jesus' place and say to you, be reconciled to God. Just kind of put that in just regular language. If Jesus were standing here, this is what he would say to you. Be reconciled to God. It all begins with seeing God in the most difficult of our situations. God may be orchestrating events in your life right now for the purpose of bringing you for the first time to see Jesus. Perhaps he will change your life, but it won't be easy. He will give you hope and a future, but not without cost, because he's going to give you a chance to join him in his purposes of redeeming the world for you who have joined him in his plan. It isn't easy, is it? It's hard. Ask Joseph, who stands before 10 brothers who hated him, who condemned him to a life of misery. Really, in their view, they condemned him to death. You can hear them saying that. And he says, it was not you who sent me here. It was God. And God has a plan for good. Can you say that? Can you believe that? Let's pray. Our Father, it's probably easier right now sitting in our comfortable chairs to say, we believe that God has a plan and we know that he has a plan for us. But when it comes right down to the difficulties of life. When we drive out of here this afternoon with what happens tomorrow morning, with our job, with our family, with the, the friends that don't understand us and the enemies that think they do. We get to say that then. And toward these people, and in these circumstances, stand as representatives for God and for his redemption and recognize that it was not these people that were the primary instrument of our difficulty. It was God who is working through difficulties to bring us closer to himself. So work, we pray. Work in us. Remind us of this. Help us to say with Joseph over and over again this week, it was not you who sent me here. It was God so that we could receive these things from the hand of God and recognize your purposes better than understanding your purposes, though, that we would see you. We ask these things for Jesus' sake.